Welcome to the Urban Astronomer Podcast. Welcome to the fourth episode of the Urban Astronomer Podcast. This week, we've got some interesting news about black holes and another interview with a figure in South African astronomy. But first, I would like to talk a bit about you, the people listening to this podcast. We're only four episodes in, and yet we're seeing amazing numbers in my traffic reports. The number of people downloading, streaming, or otherwise listening to the Urban Astronomer podcast is increasing exponentially at about 50% per week. And that suggests to me that you like what I'm doing, or at least enough to tell your friends about the podcast. That makes me so happy, and I'm really grateful to every single one of you. Thank you for giving the Urban Astronomer podcast such a good start to its life. We've written about black holes several times in the past on Urban Astronomer. They're fascinating objects, and there's no end of questions about their properties and behavior. One of these that I've always found particularly strange is the absence of intermediate mass black holes. See, all of the black holes that we know about are either stellar mass black holes or supermassive black holes. The stellar mass ones are little guys. They have diameters measured in tens of kilometers and have a mass in the region of anything up to a few tens of times the mass of our own sun. Supermassive black holes, on the other hand, have masses measured in hundreds of thousands or even millions of suns, and they tend to be found at the centers of galaxies. Now, we know how stellar mass black holes can form. The violent death of a star is usually involved, and it makes sense that supermassive black holes started small and grew as they consumed more and more matter. But if that's the case, then we should have seen some intermediate mass black holes, something between the two classes. After all, it would be a bit weird to find supermassive black holes just appearing fully formed out of nowhere. The problem is that up until now, nobody's ever seen one of these middle-sized black holes, and that's always been a bit of a problem because they really should be out there. The good news is that this problem seems to have been solved. A group of astronomers working through the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics, Cambridge, Massachusetts, USA, were basing their observations on an earlier theory that globular clusters might be a good place to look for these intermediate mass black holes. The idea is that the heaviest stars in a globular cluster tend to sink inwards towards the center, with the lighter stars having much wider orbits. As all these stars move through their orbits, they tug on each other gravitationally, scattering their paths in a way that turns out to affect the overall distribution of stars within the cluster. Therefore, if a large black hole is hiding in there, we should be able to detect it indirectly, by measuring how the rest of the stars are arranged and how they're moving. So that's what they did. And they found a very high probability of an object at the center of the cluster with a mass of around 2,200 times that of the Sun. I should clarify, there's definitely an object there. The probability is merely for that exact number. And since stars that size cannot possibly exist without immediately collapsing in a supernova explosion, it means that they have found their first ever intermediate mass black hole. Of course, there's still lots of work to be done here. Other scientists need to repeat this method to confirm that they get the same answer. And more of these big black holes need to be found in other globular clusters. But once we've identified enough of them to make meaningful comparisons we'll be able to not only develop an understanding of these elusive monsters, but also better understand how the truly big supermassive black hole at the center of our own Milky Way galaxy behaves, and how it came to exist in the first place. A few months ago, I met Chris Stewart to interview him. 
he is one of the lead figures in uh, the amateur telescope making class, which is run jointly by the Johannesburg and Pretoria Centers of ASA. It's where I started making my own mirror, and one day I will return to finish it. He's also on the organizing committee of SCOPEX, the annual South African Telescope and Astronomy Expo held in Johannesburg, and he's also the director of instrumentation for the Astronomical Society of South Africa. Chris and I talked for long enough about so many topics that I realized I could never fit the entire recording into one episode. So it's going to be split up between episodes. Here is part one. I'm just an ordinary guy who happens to have had an obsession with telescopes since the day he was born. Uh-huh. And that is not kidding. Mm. I got my first telescope when I was about three and a half years old, and I promptly dismantled it to see how it worked. My crawling baby brother at the time uh, picked it up and stuck it in his mouth, cut himself badly, and before the day was out, my Christmas present was in the bin, and I've still not recovered from the trauma. (laughs) (laughs) What did he cut himself on? The tube, or...? Yes, because I took out the objective lens, and, uh, you know, in those days, things weren't plastic, they were steel, and, uh, you know... Stuck his tongue in it, fell over, sliced the web under his tongue. Ouch. Um, blood and <laughs> snot and trana, you know. But uh, the doctor said that it had saved the family a few bucks because they were going to have to perform an operation to uh, untongue tie him. <laughs> so I, th- I think it was a good deal. Uh-huh. Mm. Right. But I mean, more than that, you. Well, I've got a, a varied kind of history. I, I grew up in Cape Town. Uh, Back then, the skies were pretty decent. Mm-hmm. When I was about 14, I guess, when was it? In around about 69, I'd, I'd got my first real astronomical telescope by then, a three and a half inch Newtonian on mm-hmm. an old azimuth mount. Uh, that was a year's worth of odd jobs to get uh, my share of the cost, and my godfather paid the other 50%. Mm-hmm. I managed to negotiate a third discount from the supplier. Now. 20 bucks was my life savings, <laughs> and it sounds ludicrous now, but I had to work for that. And uh, that's how I learned to see the deep space. Mm-hmm. Um, I could see the polar caps of Mars with that little instrument, mm-hmm. back when my eyes were new. Yeah. Um, I independently discovered Comet 1969A, which uh, Jack Bennett got the Gill Medal for discovering up here just a few weeks earlier. I didn't know that. Really? Yeah. Um, when, I mean, I... By then it was all over, so there's no publicity for me, you understand. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, yeah. And, uh, well, it was quite a while before I was able to get a better scope than that. I was already in my late 20s by that stage. So, mm-hmm. you know, that lasted me well, and I still have it. Mm-hmm. Uh, for my fifth birthday, I got a microscope and a book on space travel. Of course, space travel was just a dream at that time, but it was something mm. I was interested in. So literally, since I was born, I've been interested in such things. I think I got my first microscope at five as well, five or six. Our pharmacist gave it to me. It had oh. real glass lenses and so on, and, uh, and it survived all the way up until, ooh, I suppose, 20 years ago when I built a Foucault tester and I sacrificed uh, parts of the microscope for the cause mm. and it's been doing sterling work in the telescope making class ever since okay the class you you who runs that I mean it's, it's you and uh, a couple of other people right yes it's a very informal thing uh, it started when the then uh, chairman of the Jobeck Center of the Astronomical Society 
wanted somebody to run a class because there were a couple of people who had unfinished instruments that they'd started when somebody else ran a class, Brian Fraser. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, they were making mirrors, they were part way through and things sort of fell apart. And I said, no, I'm not going to run a mirror making class, which is what he asked for. I said, I'll run a telescope making class. And it was supposed to be a once-off, but it's been going for 25 years now. <laughs> and uh, it's run informally. People mm-hmm. can come and go. Initially, we tried to keep things in step because, uh, for example, when you're working with different grades of abrasives, you don't want cross-contamination when you've spent hundreds of hours on your mirror and then a big lump of coarse grit gets in and scratches yeah. it. It's quite traumatic. But the fact is people have various demands on their lives. Uh, you know, People get married and have kids and then five years later they come back again to continue or, uh, you know, varsity or, mm-hmm. you know, exams, uh, all sorts of things happen. So uh, now we just, as people arrive, they do what they can and we just guide them through the whole process. And it's quite nice because that means that newcomers get to see all the various stages all at once instead of having to wait mm-hmm. maybe six months before they see the next step. So they have a better understanding of what's ahead of them. Right. Now it is a, I mean, as you know, I've, I've, I've been there and I will come back one day and finish that mirror. Which you should. One day. Because, <laughs> uh, yeah, I think it was it just, yeah, I never finished polishing it, so I, I realised. So that's, that's all that has to happen. Well, I polishing started my first mirror when I was 13, mm. six inch. I carved it out of a big chunk of glass with my bare hands, so to speak. I mm-hmm. got a piece of pipe and I put a handle on it and just rotated it in a frame so that it would stay in the same place until it made a groove and then it cut its way through. Mm-hmm. Throw some abrasive and water in, grind, 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 clean it out, mm-hmm. continue. And just cutting the tool and the mirror out of the piece of glass was two whole days from about six in the morning till 10 at night. <laughs> and I certainly had the blisters to prove it. Um, These days, uh, it's hard to find thick glass, which I was able to get at that time. It had actually been a very fortunate experience. I was going to say, where where did you find glass? Well, you see, I heard through the kids' grapevine that uh, some kid around the corner, his dad worked at plate glass. And I, I was a very shy kid, but I somehow managed to work up the courage to go and accost his dad who was working in his garage the one evening mm-hmm. and say I understand you work at plate glass and he said yes I said well I need you to get me a piece of glass one inch thick and 12 inches square he says what on earth for I said because I want to make a telescope so a couple of weeks later I got a phone call the glass <laughs> was there and I was fortunate because some seriously uh, wealthy individual was building a very fancy house and uh-huh. he'd taken it into his head that he wanted a window from his subterranean pub into his swimming pool so that while they're standing in their <laughs> pub they can watch the people swim. And this was an offcut of that. So right. one, in, one inch thick piece of glass, 25 millimeters. Mm-hmm. And I'm afraid these days the thickest you can get in terms of float glass here is 19 millimeters. It's also quite expensive. Mm. You need fair thickness for your mirror because otherwise it sags under its own weight and it's not perceptible to the naked eye but uh, Mm. on the level of a wavelength of light it can be quite an extreme amount and then it damages the image. Mm. Um, These days because we no longer have such thick glass available 
we scavenge what we can. Uh, we managed to get some windows out of the Durban and the Cape Town oceanariums when they were demolished to make way for the new ones. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, only fragments of glass, not uh, all mm. of it. Uh, we were allowed to, but the uh, demolishers just came and bulldozed the place the day before our truck arrived. So I see, you're picking up bits of the floor. And so, so then it had to just be scavenged, you know. Wow. Um, and <clears throat> so we managed to find a place called Shades of Nguenya that makes glass ornaments and trophies and things. And we have them cast us discs out of recycled glass. So. Mm. A uh, number of the telescopes out there are basically using dead Coke bottles as their, <laughs> their mirror material. And uh, it's softer than plate glass, which has the advantage that it grinds and polishes that much quicker, mm-hmm. which is uh, good for the morale of the beginner. Yeah. Uh, the downside, of course, is that it does have bubbles in it. Sometimes one or two will break through to the surface during the process. It's cosmetic. You can't see the, the results in the image, but, yeah. you know... Uh, that's just the way it is. We make do with what we can. Hmm. So making a telescope then, if somebody was to come to you and say they wanted they wanted their first telescope, they didn't have a lot of money, would this be something you'd recommend that they do? Yes, without reservation. <laughs> but having said that, of course, it depends on the individual. It does take a degree of dedication to see it through. Now, before the telescope making class came into being, there were little pockets of uh, interest around the country and nobody to guide one. Mm -hmm. And uh, a number of people would start and they would hit some obstacle which in retrospect is very minor, but at the time it it was insurmountable because they didn't know what the answer was to their problem. Uh, There was no internet. Uh, Mm -hmm. uh, Books on the subject are still today quite scarce. Well, I remember about 30-odd years ago, I had all my little uh, collection of astronomy books that uh, Fame had given to me, and I think it was a Patrick Moore book, talked about building your own like he did, and all you need is a six-inch piece of glass. It's all, it's all, you know, because that's so easy to find. And then you just another one, and you rub them together, and then you've got a telescope. And it, Magically, and, yes. Yeah, so. and even I could see there, 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 you've left something out here. There's, uh, there's got to be more to it. There certainly is. It's not a difficult process, but you have to be very diligent about it. Mm. And uh, as you saw when you were grinding yours, it's, it's very easy to pick up uh, dirt and get the odd scratch. And once it's polished, you've put in a lot of effort. Uh, every hour you put in that piece of glass becomes more and more precious to you because it's your life yeah. that you're putting into it. And uh, in the final stages, even something like... A a piece of cigarette ash will scratch your mirror Mm. uh, which normally you would consider an insignificant thing and again the scratches are cosmetic you don't want too many of them because then you will start to see the effects in the image but Mm -hmm. uh, a few scratches is imperceptible yeah so then if they wanted to i suppose they could just come along to the class and uh what bring their money and uh well, the first thing is to arrive uh, wearing clothes that you don't mind getting a little bit dirty mm-hmm. and uh, bring a notebook mm-hmm. and ask questions. And we will explain and uh, talk you through the process and uh, probably give you a set of notes that will help guide you that you can sort of digest while you make up your mind. Mm-hmm. And uh, then it's just a question of how much time and effort are you prepared to put into it. 
The final cost of the telescope is difficult to determine because it depends highly on your aspirations in terms of uh, uh, cosmetic quality, the you know, beautiful finish, mm-hmm. uh, how good you are as a as a, a woodworker or, or worker of metal, as the case may be, and uh, how how much you value your time. Right? Mm-hmm. Does it, does that have a cost to you or not? But largely, it's possible to build a telescope for around 2,000 Rand. And mm-hmm. the difference in cost between a 6-inch and a 10-inch, we use the old imperial system purely because uh, that's... Well, it's historical, isn't Historical, it? exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, basically a, a, a 20 centimeter or 150... Uh, so a 20, yeah. 20 cm or 150 millimeter, you know, 6 or or 8-inch telescope, um, it shouldn't cost more than about 2,000 Rand. But we're talking about something that's fairly basic. Understand that if you're using high-quality materials, that the price will go up. Mm-hmm. If you're a good scrounger, you can keep the price remarkably low. Mm-hmm. The important thing to start off is not how pretty is it, but does it work? Right. right? And that is the bottom line. Well, you're looking now, through it, not at it. Yes. But when you're using it, it's not just the optics that count. The mechanics are very important because you can have the best telescope in the world. If you put it on a mount that wobbles, then every wobble is magnified through mm-hmm. the eyepiece and it just makes for a miserable experience. You will never be able to get the true uh, quality of image that the telescope is actually delivering because it's just waving around the image on your retina too much. Mm-hmm. And uh, the brain can't process these little fragments of information in quick succession to give a, a decent quality mental image. As telescope makers, we don't restrict ourselves just to telescopes. Uh, we make little mounts that will track the sky that you can stick a camera on. Mm-hmm. Uh, we make mounts for your binoculars, especially large binoculars. Your arms start to shake after a while because mm-hmm. uh, it's not natural to hold something up in front of you like that for long periods of time. And uh, putting it on a simple mounting will certainly improve uh, the limits of what you can see. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, you could say that you can effectively double the size of the instrument in terms of the amount of extra things that you can see just by having it on a decent mount. Mm-hmm. And talking of size, uh, you know, people see wonderful pictures of huge telescopes that are really so impressive. Mm-hmm. And then they arrive at the class and say, oh, I want to build a 16-inch or I want to build a 20-inch. And my response is, well, if that's what you want, you can try. Mm-hmm. Uh, but be careful what you wish for because you might just get it. This is not being specious. It's a, it's a serious consideration. The fact of the matter is that you and your instrument together form a system. And if there's an imbalance in the system, then it's not optimized. So consider where you're going to store this telescope, how are you going to carry it around, Uh, will you need to put it in your car, Mm. Uh, can you pick it up by yourself because you're now over 16, your back is giving in. So small instruments can give you wonderful views. And if you consider that in the city with the light pollution, the additional light grasp doesn't really help you that much. 
the, the larger diameter will give you more resolution, which will help, but uh, the extra light grasp of the, the larger area, which goes up with the square of the diameter, of course, mm -hmm. whereas the resolution goes up linearly with the diameter, um, doesn't really help that much because you don't really have access to the faint deep sky objects in a city. But on planets and the moon, of course, a little bit more aperture will certainly give you a sharper image. Mm -hmm. But again, if you can't carry it around, it's not very helpful. Being able to make the telescope yourself gives you many options as to how the design should be. Whereas if you go to a shop, you might buy something that is uh, generally very adequate, but it won't be tailored and optimized to your peculiar tastes and requirements. So uh, you can choose to make it longer or shorter, uh, larger in or smaller in diameter. You can make your mount tall or short to suit your stature or whether you prefer to sit on a chair while you're observing. Uh, all these factors can be uh, tuned if you build it yourself. And then beyond that, you're less scared of it because you know everything that went into that telescope. Right. If you bought a 50,000 rand telescope and you knew that putting a better finder on it would improve your usability. You would hesitate to drill two holes in the tube in order to mount this new finder. Yeah. You don't have that fear when you've built it yourself because the worst thing that you can do is smash it to pieces, but you've built it once. You could do it again. Right, right. Anyway, right. you've already drilled holes in it when you were making it. So yes. You're used to it. You know exactly how it works, you know what is where, and you mm -hmm. know where it's strong and where it's weak, and you know what the effects on the balance will be. Mm -hmm. All of this because you've got personal experience of it. So for these reasons, I, I really would advocate that you build a telescope. <coughs> Cost is not really the greatest issue, though, because it is true that uh, you can get superb instruments commercially at for what they are. Mm -hmm. is a very modest price that in one way or another will outperform what <coughs> excuse me what the average amateur can do so i take for example the uh, schmidt cassegrain design mm -hmm. which has got a thin uh, glass plate in the front which has got a, a curve on it that is so subtle that you can't see it by looking at it right. um, then a relatively short tube with a large mirror at the base of the tube. <coughs> and then in the middle of this corrector lens, the, front, the plate in the front, a, a secondary mirror, mm -hmm. and it folds the light path so that you can have in a, an eight inch instrument, uh, it's a 20 centimeter instrument. Um, typically, uh, it would be F10, which is to say that the focal length divided by the diameter mm -hmm. is 10. Uh, something that's maybe, uh, say, 40 or 50 centimeters long, but it's got a focal length of 2 meters. Right. Now, this makes it very compact. It also makes it versatile because it's easy to carry and store, and because you don't have the large leverage that a long tube would give, mm -hmm. it's less susceptible to wind-loading problems. Mm -hmm. uh, you can have a small amount. Uh, there, there are many advantages. But and it sounds like a real pain to make a thing like that. Yes, well, there are very few amateurs historically who've made a Schmidt Cassegrain. There are other mm -hmm. compound instruments that amateurs do make, and I can talk a little bit about that. Mm -hmm. But uh, the, the point I just want to make is that it's hard to make something like that that is so convenient. 
right. in, in so many ways, and that you can just get off the shelf and be up and running, you know, in a few minutes. Doesn't you don't have to work for a year maybe of your mm. spare time to to get the result. So there's room in the world for commercial telescopes, no doubt about it. Similarly. Uh, when it comes to refracting instruments which use uh, lenses instead of mirrors to form the image then you need highly specialized glass and uh, it can become quite complicated because where one mirror will form an image for a Newtonian telescope you need at least two different kinds of glass in the objective lens of your mm. refractor and preferably three for uh, the best possible yeah. image quality and that gets very expensive because uh, our coke bottle mirrors with the bubbles in it you don't see the bubbles because we deposit a layer of aluminium on the front and that becomes the actual mirror the glass just being a substrate for it and they're distinctly green yes so. uh, all sorts of colors sometimes yeah. um, whereas with a refractor the light has to go through the glass so the glass has to be very pure it has to have very specific characteristics and it gets expensive very quickly mm. uh, still the uh, small refractor is a delight to use if it's good quality. That's my favorite one ever was, yeah. I would advise... 10-centimeter refractor that I had, a well, about 20 years ago. It was lovely. You uh, say it was. I hope you didn't let go of it then. It wasn't mine to start with. Uh, it was loaned to me for a while, and then uh, it got taken away and uh, replaced with an 8-inch Maxitov, I believe it. Not... Uh, yeah, which is the one where the secondary is just deposited straight on the corrector plane? Yes, that, the would, Maxitov, that yes. would be a Gregory Maxutov, to be more precise. Right. Um, but a Maxutov is a fabulous instrument, particularly for uh, lunar and planetary work. Mm. Uh, you can get exquisite images out of that. It was a nice instrument, and it picked up definitely the, the extra light gloss was nice, but never quite was as had that, that crisp looking through a portal experience that they reflected it. It was a. Uh, was sorry to see it go. Even though it was, even though it was twice the diameter, it uh, wasn't quite the same. Well, maybe it just wasn't properly aligned. That's also possible. Yeah. It might just have been a bad unit, you know. Because um. typically they put a lot of effort into making good optics for it. It's an exceptional design. Yeah. Um, the spacing of the parts is not as critical as for some designs, but it nevertheless does count. And mm. so there are ways in which it can be made to perform less than optimally that you know you wouldn't notice as a neophyte user. You wouldn't be able to say, ah, this is what the problem is. Well, it, it definitely was me back then, yeah. <laughs> you see? Uh, nevertheless, uh, I, I love Maxutovs. And mm. uh, a five-inch Maxutov is, is a beautiful, compact thing as a grab-and-go telescope. Hmm. That was the first part of my interview with Chris Stewart, Instrumentation Director of the Astronomical Society of South Africa. You'll be able to hear the next part in a future episode. Next week, though, we will introduce my new co-host in a series of segments on basic astronomy. She'll be kicking off by running through the planets of our solar system. First up, Mercury. Meanwhile, it's time to sign off and end this particular episode. If you liked what you heard, or if you have any suggestions or requests for what we should do with future shows, why not tweet me at uastronomer, or leave a comment under the show notes on www.urban-astronomer.com, or engage us on our Facebook page, or even just send an email to podcast at urban-astronomer.com. We would love to hear from you. 
Meanwhile, just keep telling everyone about the Urban Astronomer podcast. We'll see you next week. Thank you.